Okay, this is an article on The Guardian. It was published on February 10th, 2022, and it is written by one Nina Lacani. One in three Americans have detectable levels of toxic weed killer in their body. Study finds. Ah. Human exposure to the herbicide 2,4-D has substantially risen amid expanding use among farmers despite a multitude of health and environmental concerns, according to the first nationally representative study evaluating the footprint of the chemical. The herbicide was developed in the mid-1940s and quickly became the go-to weed killer for farmers, focusing on increasing crop yields, while also gaining popularity among gardeners looking for a pristine lawn. Its popularity dipped in favor of Roundup and genetically modified cotton and soybean resistance to this herbicide, but it has seen a resurgence since the spread of Roundup resistant weeds have been found. 2,4-D is currently riding high tank thanks to this whack-a-mole approach to pest control and industrialized farming, with about 600 U.S. agricultural and residential products now containing the chemical which can be ingested through the skin, mouth, and nose. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that it's more than just having to fully eat the entire thing? Yeah. Researchers from George Washington University examined the urine sample of 14,395 people aged 6 and older from all walks of life who take part in the annual national Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, and they looked for biomarkers to the pesticide and compared the exposure levels detected from the use of 2,4-D from 2001 to 2014. As the pesticide grew in popularity among farmers and gardeners, so did evidence of human exposure, rising from a low 17% in 2001 to a high of almost 40% a decade later. Whoa. I'm just going to skip ahead a bit. Further study must determine how rising exposure to 2,4-D affects human health, especially when exposure occurs early in life, said Melissa Perry, professor of environmental and occupational health and senior author of the paper. Children and other vulnerable groups are also increasingly exposed to other pesticides, and these chemicals may act synergistically to produce health problems. The study also found that Black participants who multiple previous studies have shown to have higher exposure to all sorts of environmental pollutants showed signs of lower exposure to the weed killer than white Americans. This may be a result of historically racist policies restricting access to homes with gardens and green spaces for black communities, the researcher argued. Mm. And overall, the use of 2,4-D increased by 67% from 2012 to 2020, which wasn't even a group that they were testing. It was from 2001 to 2014. So even higher now. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you gotta have a nice garden. Apparently. You gotta. At the risk of cancer and anything else that it might do to you. You gotta. For the garden. For the garden, we should all die. I think Nobody it's Nobody wants reasonable. weeds. <laughs> and with that, I think we've bummed you all out enough to actually start a fun episode. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, the only podcast brave enough not to assume a cryptid's gender identity. Don't believe us? Look back, please, at our episodes, most specifically our Moth Person episodes. We are your unassuming hosts, Taylor and Chelsea, and today we're doing a bit of a follow-up on an episode that in itself was a follow-up. Now, Chelsea did the Montauk episode not that long ago. And there was kind of like a one-off sentence that kind of set my research mind abuzz. It was specifically about Project Phoenix and its relationship with orgone energy, which didn't really mean that much at the time. It was really literally a sentence that I said, I'm not going to tell you anything else. Yeah. It's too complicated. 
You already had an interest in it, right? Yeah, I've heard it enough that and I didn't really know what it was that I decided it was time to actually take that look. And my God, is the history of this thing crazy. Great, because I know nothing about it. It turns out most of this episode actually isn't about Orgone Energy itself, but its main researcher. So (laughs) you might not leave knowing much more about Orgone Energy. We're never going to know anything about Orgone Energy. You're going to know enough about Orgone Energy. And if you even look at the wiki page, I didn't really know what Orgone Energy was just from the wiki page. It's pretty short. It's pseudoscience. And that's about where it leaves it off. Where you really need to go is you need to go look at the original researcher by the name of Wilhelm Reich. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to start this episode off. I'm going to give you the briefest definition I can of what orgone energy is. And then we're going to look at who Wilhelm Reich is. Because it is absolutely paramount to knowing why this gets brought up and just how bizarre it is. He's paramount. Okay. He is absolutely the key to all of this. So there's no Orgon without... Yeah, the trail starts at Wilhelm Reich, if you will. Okay. What is Orgon energy to keep it as simple as possible? It is a massless, omnipresent substance, similar to like the ether that people talk about, or chi, but more closely associated with living energy than with inert matter. It could also allegedly coalesce to create organization on all scales from absolutely tiny atoms atoms in what they call bions in orgone theory to macroscopic structures as big as clouds or even galaxies at the absolute biggest level. Wilhelm Reich unfortunately never lived to the day where he could study orgone level on the galactic level. So that one's still a mystery. I feel like we're still probably not there, but that's just an assumption at this point. We're still in our infancy in orgone energy, just yes. Just total assumption on my behalf on that one. The thing that I've always associated, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Chelsea, it's a box that just has a chair in it for people to sit and they close it. I am familiar with it because I am looking at it currently. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's that. yeah, that's an orgone accumulation chamber. And I've seen it before and I'm always like, what is it accumulating? I don't know. And like, it doesn't hook up to anything. It's just a box. No, and it, it has reflective matter on the inside? Kind of. We might get into it. So is this like Bitcoin? No, you don't get money from it. You might potentially not get cancer, but that is a heavily disputed thing. It's even hard to say what Wilhelm Reich said about it. With all the gardening going on in this day and age. Yeah, you might as well just sit inside a chamber. You're probably healthier (laughs) inside a chamber of metal (laughs) and other products. Who is this Wilhelm Reich character? There are a few things I'm going to say that just sound weird. Why am I including this? A few paragraphs after I say it, it's going to make sense. Especially this one here. Wilhelm Reich was born in 1897 into a wealthy family in what would now be Ukraine. Although this was all written pre-Russian war with them, so I don't know where in Ukraine it was and whether or not it's still in the hands of Ukraine. He claimed to have lost his virginity at the age of 11 to a family cook and to have visited a brothel at age 15. Yes, it is paramount to the story. (laughs) Okay. After serving in the Austro-Hungarian army in World War I, he studied medicine in Vienna. When he heard of a seminar on sex being given by Sigmund Freud, (laughs) that man that we all know, Sigmund Freud. What is going on? (laughs) Yeah, this is how it starts. Okay. (laughs) Wilhelm Reich goes and visits Sigmund, and he's like, hey, I love your work. Can I get a reading list? I need to know where I need to advance to help get to where you are. And they just immediately are like, oh yeah, we both really care an awful lot about weird sex stuff. So we're going to be friends now. So these two are just friends now. And in fact, kind of work buddies now. Like it just happens. (laughs) 
Freud began referring patients to him, and Reich started developing his own theories, becoming convinced of the power of sexual healing. Honestly, if this is where he decided to stop his research, he would probably be remembered somewhere on the level of Freud, probably closer to like Carl Jung or Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Still, he would have been a highly respected psychotherapist of his day. He actually had some interesting theories that he worked with. Okay. This not being necessarily one of them, but this is a direct quote from one of his books. If undischarged sexual energy caused neurosis, mightn't it follow that the discharge of sexual energy was in itself a healing force? He wrote this in the book, The Function of the Orgasm in 1926. <laughs> and he was convinced that good quality sexual climaxes promoted physical health. When Reich gave Freud a copy of The Function of the Orgasm, the skeptical older man Freud muttered, that thick, eh? <laughs> And the pair would eventually fall out over their differing views. In a letter to another psychoanalyst, Freud referred to Reich as the impetus young man passionately devoted to his hobby horse, who now salutes in the genital orgasms, the antidote to every neurosis. When Freud later developed cancer, Reich regarded it as a result of sexual frustration. He got mouth cancer from smoking the cigars. This is also where he probably came up with like his biggest claim to fame as a psychotherapist. Reich proposed that muscular armor was a defense that contained the history of the patient's trauma. For example, he blamed Freud's jaw cancer on his muscular armor rather than his smoking. Freud's Judaism meant he was biting down impulsively rather than expressing his emotions. Dissolving the armor would bring back the memory of childhood repression that had caused the blockage in the first place. As a psychotherapist, he had a lot of ideas of like, we need to sit down with these people and actually talk with them, not just let them talk themselves to an answer. We need to ask them questions, give them responses. He was big on facing them, like face to face. And then on the weirder end of his muscular armor thing, he also believed in like physically touching the patient to help them get past their muscular armor which might be massaging in certain places. It does make sense though, like nervous tics, you can talk about it and there might be something to it where it comes from. And that's kind of where the idea of muscular armor comes from in his psychoanalytical view. Does that make sense? A little, must touch the patients. Yeah, let's touch the patients and get past it. And I'm just gonna state it now, it ends up to a lot of claims of sexual assault in his clinics. Not necessarily by him, but people working under him. But I just need to get that out of the way because I didn't include the part at the end where there's just a ton of kids. And we're just going to get past that part. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Also on top of that, he was living in what would be that time, the mid-20s Germany. Also, he claimed to be a devout Marxist. He argued that the proletariat was so politically impotent because the workers were sexually repressed. Revolution, (laughs) right claim, could only happen in an uninhibited release of sexual urges. With that being said, devout Marxist, a lot about sex, Hitler comes to power and he's like, this this doesn't look good for me. They're already cracking down on anybody who is not following gender conforming views, sexual conforming views. Maybe I need to get the fuck out of here. So he gets on a train and he heads to Norway. He leaves his first wife behind and he continues what? the research. Yeah. I didn't look too much at that part just because it's not as crazy as the other stuff this guy does. No, it's not, but but he just, like, see ya. Yeah, he loves her his entire life, but he ends up having to leave her in Germany and he heads to Norway. Okay, weird tidbit. Another weird tidbit. Yeah. 
and this in Norway. By the way, this is all on his Wikipedia page. Like, I went to a few outside sources to look at everything, but the conspiracy stuff is just batshit insane. So you have to stick with the Wikipedia page and make sure that it all makes sense together. In Norway, he starts to continue on a path of research that he was already on, but this is where Orgone really starts to come into light. So while in Norway, as part of his Bion research, Reich undertook extensive microscopic observations of living cancer tissue. He concluded that tumor formation involves a process of bionis tissue disintegration and reorganization into amoeboids, cancer cells similar to the natural organization of protozoa. He had previously observed in hay infusions. Reich was also able to isolate a specific pathogenic type of bion that he called the P. bacillus from cancer tissue. Reich also integrated insight derived from his clinical work in the study of cancer, and in his own clinical work with cancer patients, he frequently noted a characterological resignation and shallow breathing. In this context, he recognized the importance of Otto Warburg's earlier findings of reduced aerobic respiration in cancer tissue. And I just need to say, this part onwards, for a little while, comes right from an Orgone Institute website. Okay. There are still people who talk about this stuff a lot. During his medical research on cancer, Reich developed a series of blood and tissue tests that were employed both for early diagnosis and to follow the patient's progress during treatment. The three Reich blood tests consisted of, one, the microscope test, which measures the rate of bionis disintegration of erythrocytes, red blood cells, in physiological saline, and determines whether or not they disintegrate into blue PA bions or T bacilli. Two, the autoclave test, which assesses the cohesiveness of anthrocytes following sterilization in an autoclave. And three, the blood culture test, in which an attempt is made to culture T. bacilli in bacteriological broth. Reich also employed the examination of unsustained live specimens of sputum or vaginal secretions in order to detect precancerous or cancerous cells. This is where he discovers orgone energy. I just had to keep that in there because I didn't want to just go right into it. I wanted to show he's at least doing some research. And it is. Hmm. At least sounds fancy, so. It did sound rather fancy. In 1939, Reich found that bions prepared from ocean sand, SAPA bions, had unusual radiant energy properties, including luminescence in the dark, fogging of photographic plates, and reddening of skin exposed through quartz glass. The finding that they could induce a charge on organic materials that would register on an electroscope led him to call the radiation orgone energy. In an attempt to isolate this radiation, Reich enclosed the SAPA bion cultures in a modified Faraday cage. A Faraday cage is basically a box that you could build that keeps electromagnetic waves out. Okay. You can build these. These are very real things. Like, you can't use your phone inside them. If you've ever seen Better Call Saul, Saul's brother lives in a fairly large Faraday cage because he's scared of electricity, but was surprised to find that the radiant energy phenomenon persists without the cultures. After a series of observations and experiments, which continued in the United States, where Reich reestablished his laboratory in late 1939, he came to the conclusion that orgone energy was also present in the surrounding atmosphere and could in fact be concentrated by an apparatus such as his modified Faraday cage, which consisted of a galvanized iron box surrounded by an organic material such as wood, wool, or fiberboard. This apparatus, the orgone energy accumulator was then further modified to increase its effects and extensively employed by Reich in both physical and biological investigations. Reich made the remarkable discovery that a slight temperature difference called TOT existed between orgone energy accumulators and a control cabinet lacking metal but with similar insulating properties. A difference which exhibited a diurnal variation increased in fair weather and decreased in rainy weather or high humidity. He also found that the discharge rate of 
of charged electroscopes was much slower inside an orgone accumulator than in a controlled box or in an open air area. And also that the electroscope discharge rate exhibited a diurnal variation and responded to changes in the weather similar to TOT. Several studies replicating these original findings have been published and the interested readers referred to the bibliography. We'll link the website in their summary just so people can go there if they feel like it. So that's basically what he found. You could find temperature variations inside of orgone accumulation chamber that he had built versus outside it. And he felt that it was helping stop cancer from growing inside the orgone. And this was just a feeling he had at this point. Well, he did studies on it. They say these are backed with things, but if you keep listening, you're going to learn a bit more. Okay, I'll do that. Like we saw from his earlier life, Reich really believed, like he had an obsession with sexuality. So he believed orgone was closely associated with sexuality. Reich following Freud saw nascent sexuality as the primary energetic force of life. The term itself, orgone, was chosen because it had the root word orgasm combined with the root word ozo. So orgone, orgasm ozo. Okay. The focus on sexuality, while acceptable in the clinic perspective of Viennese psychoanalytic analytical circles, scandalized the conservative American public even as it appealed to counterculture figures around the world. This guy inspired quite a few of the hippies, especially the writers in those days. Also, strangely enough, came up with the term sexual revolution. He did? Yeah, he, he is yeah. credited with coming up with that term. Interesting. Once this is all done, basically a professor came over and listened to a lecture he was giving in Norway from, I believe it was the New School in New York. I didn't write it down right here. I think it comes up later. But they come over and they're like, my God, you have such unique ideas. You need to come over to the US. So they bring him over. They get him a teaching position at a university. And he comes over and he's like, perfect. This is the perfect place to start marketing and selling my orgone accumulation chambers. So in 1940, when he moves to the States, he began to build insulated Faraday cages that he called orgone accumulators that he said would concentrate the orgo. The earliest boxes were for laboratory animals. First human-sized five-foot-tall boxes were built in December of 1940 and set up in the basement of his house. It was made of plywood lined with rock wool and sheet iron and had a chair inside and a small window. The box had multiple layers of these materials, which caused the orgone concentration inside the box to be three to five times stronger than in the air, Reich said, and patients were expected to sit inside them naked. I don't know if my professor said, hey, you need to come over to my basement, get naked and get inside this box. <laughs> that it sounds like all sorts I'm of I'm going to sign up for that research. <laughs> yeah. The accumulators were tested on plant growth in mice with cancer. Reich wrote to his supporters in July of 1941 that orgone is definitely able to destroy cancer growth. This is proved by the fact that tumors in all parts of the body are disappearing or diminishing. No other remedy in the world can claim such a thing. Although not licensed to practice medicine in the United States, he began testing the boxes on human beings diagnosed with cancer and schizophrenia. In one case, the test had to be stopped prematurely because the subject heard a rumor that Reich was insane. There were stories, which were false, that he had been hospitalized in the Utica State Mental Hospital. In another case, the father of an eight-year-old girl with cancer approached him for help, then complained to the American Medical Association he was practicing without a license. He asked his supporters to stick with him through the criticism, believing that he had developed a grand unified theory of physical and mental health. These are a bit of the claims. The therapeutic effects of the orgone energy accumulator were nothing short of miraculous. In severe cases of burns, a pamphlet on the device claimed experiences have revealed the amazing fact that no blisters appear and that the initial redness slowly disappears. The wounds heal in a matter of a few hours. Severe ones need a day or two. 
The box's concentration of orgone can even sterilize wounds, plus treat colds, arthritis, ulcers, and yes, even cure cancer if caught in its early stages. There's no evidence that Reich actually made a pamphlet that said that, but there were pamphlets that said that out. And then in 1940, Wilhelm Reich wrote a letter to Albert Einstein because he thought he had such good ideas, saying that he had a scientific discovery he wanted to discuss. And in January of 1941, he visited Einstein in his home in Princeton. Like, this guy was that well-known that Einstein actually felt like he at least had to humor the guy with a visit, where they both talked for nearly five hours. He told Einstein that he had discovered a specific biologically effective energy, which behaves in many respects differently to all that is known about electromagnetic energy. He said it could be used against disease and as a weapon in the fight against the fascist pestilence. <laughs> Einstein agreed that if an object's temperature could be raised without apparent heating source, as Reich was suggesting, it would be a quote-unquote bomb. And that was like the claim that was biggest about the orgone accumulation chamber is that it was able to raise the ambient temperature in it as opposed to everything else around it without any energy source, which should be impossible. Like you shouldn't just be able to raise temperature willy-nil. You need an input energy. Hmm. And that's why if it's true, Einstein said this would go against a lot of what's going on, or at least in our research in physics. So we're humans create, like living beings create this energy, right? Everything creates it. I didn't quite put the quote, but he says that the Aurora Borealis Northern Lights, that's orgone energy. He gets to it eventually, weather is made by orgone energy. It's inside us, it creates our happiness, our good It's feeling. just a, something um, that's in the universe? It's inert. It's like chi. It's, it's ether. Okay, so it's not it's the life fact force. that you're in an insulated container and it's like body heat reflecting back or something like that. No. Okay. Reich was much encouraged by the meeting and hoped he would be invited to join Princeton's Institute for Advanced Studies. During their next meeting, he gave Einstein a small accumulator and over the next 10 days, Einstein performed experiments with it in his basement, which involved taking the temperature above, inside, and near the device and stripping it down to its Faraday cage to compare temperatures. He observed an increase of temperature, which Reich argued was caused by orgo. One of Einstein's assistants pointed out that the temperature was lower on the floor than on the ceiling, and Einstein concluded that the effect was simply due to the temperature gradient inside the room. Through these experiments, I regard the matter as completely solved, he wrote to Reich on February 7th, 1941. So Einstein gets a hold of this and says, dude, you just don't understand how temperature works, apparently. Like, it's just going to be warmer, higher up than near the ground. Simple as that. Reich responded with a 25-page letter in which he tried to change Einstein's mind. To rule out the influence of convection, he told Einstein that he had taken certain measures, including introducing a horizontal plate above the accumulator, wrapping it in a blanket, hanging it from the ceiling, putting it underground and placing it outside. He wrote that in all these circumstances, the temperature difference remained, and it was in fact more marked in the open air. Einstein did not respond to this or to Reich's future correspondence, and Reich would write regularly reporting the results of his experiments, until Reich threatened three years later to publish their previous exchange. Einstein replied that he could not devote any further time to the matter, and asked that his name not be misused for advertising purposes. Reich believed that Einstein's change of heart was part of a conspiracy of some kind, and perhaps related to the communist or prompted by that rumor that Reich was ill. And Reich published the correspondence in 1953 as the Einstein Affair. He starts to get a little crazy at this point. Reich lost his position at the New School in 1941 after writing to the director Alvin Johnson to say he had saved several lives in secret experiments with the accumulator. 
again, he's not supposed to be practicing medicine, so the new school is going to be getting in trouble for this. And they don't want to be associated with this guy who's illegally practicing medicine. So mm. Johnson was aware of Reich's claims that he could cure cancer and told him the new school was not an appropriate institution for the work. Reich was evicted from his house on Kessel Street, which I didn't bring up, but his original house after his neighbors complained about the animal experiments going on inside it. Oh my God. However, his supporters, including one Walter Briel, gave him $14,000 to buy a new house and he settled into a new one. Things get a little heated on December 12th, 1941, five days after the attack on Pearl Harbor and a day after Germany declared its war on the US. Reich was arrested in his home at 2 a.m. by the FBI and taken to Ellis Island where he was held for three weeks. At the time, a lot of Germans were arrested because they thought they were sympathetic to the German war movement. Mm -hmm. He clearly wasn't and it actually was a case of mistaken identity but this did make him even more paranoid than he was before. So he gets a little crazier after this. In November of 1942, Reich purchases an old farm for $4,000 in Dodge Pond, Maine, near Wrangley, with 280 acres of land. He called it Organon. <laughs> And he started spending summers there and had a one-room cabin built in 1943, a laboratory in 1945, and a larger cabin in 1946, and finally an observatory in 1948. In 1950, he decided to live there year-round, and in May that year, moved from New York with his son Peter, his wife Ilsa, who is his second wife, and Reich's daughter Eva, with the idea of creating a center for the study of orgone. Several colleagues moved there with him, including two physicians with an interest in orgone, and Lois Wivel, who ran the Orgone Press Institute. The artist, William Moyes, joined Reich as an assistant at Organone and later married Eva Reich, his daughter. Organone still houses the Wilhelm Reich Museum, so you can go there if you want. I don't know what's actually there. I didn't look at anything on it. <laughs> and as well as a holiday cottage available to rent, one of which is the cottage in which Wilhelm himself lived. There's a unique Airbnb experience. Yeah, for sure. I wonder how many weird chambers there are in that building. Yeah, probably a lot. It's going out on a limb. While he's doing all this stuff in Organon, his reputation took a sudden downturn in April of 1947 when articles were posted by one Mildred Eddie Brady in Harper's and The New Republic. In the latter one, The New Republic was entitled The Strange Case of Wilhelm Reich, with the subhead, The Man Who Blames Both Neurosis and Cancer on Unsatisfactory Sexual Activities has been repudiated by only one scientific journal. Brady's ultimate target was not Reich, but psychoanalysts, which, according to Turner, she saw as akin to astrology. But she specifically wrote about Reich. Orgone, named after the sexual orgasm, is, according to Reich, a cosmic energy. It is, in fact, the cosmic energy. Reich has not only discovered it, he has seen it, demonstrated it, and named a town, Organon, Maine, after it. Here, he builds accumulators of it, which are rented out to patients who presumably derive orgastic potency from it. She claimed falsely, however, that he had said the accumulators would cure not only impotence, but cancer. Brady argued that the growing Reich cult had to be dealt with. And it's at this point that the FDA gets an eye on Reich and he gets even more paranoid because people start coming by and asking him questions about what he's actually doing. His paranoia gets a little further and Reich and his second wife, Ilsa, divorce in September of 1951. Here's the story about it. Ostensibly because he thought she had an affair. She continued working with him for another three years, even after he divorced. He suspected her of having affairs and persuaded her to sign confessions about her feelings of fear and hatred towards him, <laughs> which he locked away in the archives of his Orgone Institute. He wrote several documents denouncing her while having an affair himself with Lois Wivel, who ran the Orgone Institute Press. Like, the two women in his life. 
while this is all going on though, Reich said he had discovered another type of energy that he called dead orgon radiation, or DOR, accumulation of which played a role in desertification. He designed a cloudbuster row 15 foot aluminum pipes mounted on a mobile platform connected to cables that were inserted into water. He believed that it could unblock orgon energy in the atmosphere and cause rain. Turner described it as an orgon box turned inside out. He conducted dozens of experiments with the Cloudbuster, calling his research cosmic orgone engineering. During a drought in 1953, two farmers in Maine offered to pay him if he could make it rain to save their blueberry crop. Reich used the Cloudbuster on the morning of July 6, and according to Banger's Daily News, based on an account from an anonymous eyewitness who was probably his son, Peter Reich, rain began to fall that evening. The crop survived, the farmers declared themselves satisfied, and Reich received his fee. However, over the years, the FDA interviewed physicians, Reich students, and his patients, asking about the orgone accumulator. I love this quote. I tried, there's a hyperlink in the wiki, but I couldn't get to the actual FDA document. But I just love this. A professor at the University of Oregon, not to be confused with orgone, who bought an accumulator, told the FDA inspector that he knew the device was phony, but found it helpful because his wife sat quietly in it for four <laughs> hours every day. It just keeps going on and on with glorious things. <laughs> Oh yeah, it doesn't do shit, but it keeps her quiet. <laughs> I just love that. It's like getting your kids video games. Yeah, I know it doesn't help them, but it, it shuts them up for a yeah, while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The attention of the FDA triggered a belligerent response from Reich, who called the FDA Higgs, which stood for hoodlums in government, and the tools of red fascists. He developed delusions that he had powerful friends in the government, which included President Eisenhower. No idea why. There's no communications between them. <laughs> who he believed would protect him, and that the US Air Force was flying over Ogonin to make sure that he was alright. <laughs> On July 29, 1952, three inspectors arrived at Organon unannounced. Sheriff writes that Reich detested unannounced visitors. He had once chased some people away with a gun just for looking at an adjacent property. He told the inspectors they had to read his work before he would interact with them and ordered them to leave. <laughs> and I don't know if it worked or not, but there's a two-year gap now. In 1954, the United States Attorney for the District of Maine filed a 27-page complaint seeking a permanent injunction under Section 301 and 302 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act to prevent interstate shipment of orgone accumulators and ban promotional literature. Reich refused to appear in court, arguing that no court was in a position to evaluate his work, and in a letter to John D. Clifford Jr., the judge, he wrote, my factual position in this case, as well as in the world of science of today, does not permit me to enter the case against the Food and Drug Administration. Since such an action would, in my mind, imply admission of the authority of this special branch of the government to pass judgment on my primordial pre-atomic energy orgone energy, I therefore rest the case in full confidence in your hands. So naturally, his argument that this government body has no authority works with the judge and he says nothing I can do just kidding the injunction was granted by default on March 19th 1954 merely one month later and the judge ordered that all accumulators parts and instructions be destroyed <laughs> and that several of Reich's books that mentioned Orgone be withheld the injunction triggered a further deterioration of Reich's mental health 
From at least early 1954, he came to believe that the planet was under attack by UFOs, which he called energy alphas. He said he often saw them flying over organon, shaped like thin cigars with windows, leaving streams of deadly black orgone radiation in their wake, which he believed the aliens were scattering to destroy the Earth. He and his son would spend their nights searching for UFOs through telescopes and binoculars, and sometimes when they believed they had found one, they would roll out a cloud buster to suck the energy out of it. The perceived or imagined UFO being the thing they're sucking the energy out of. Wright claimed he had shot several of them down. Armed with two cloudbusters, they fought what Wright called a full-scale interplanetary battle in Arizona, where he'd rented a house as a battle station. Whoa. So the rumors were eventually true that he was insane. Yeah. In late 1954, Wright began an affair with Greta Hoff. Hoff was married to another former student and patient of his, the psychologist Myron Sheriff, who decades later with his fury on Earth became Reich's main biographer. So she wrote his biography eventually. Hoff and Sheriff had had their first child the year before Hoff left in for Reich. The marriage was never prepared, although the affair had ended by June of 1955. Two months later, Reich began another relationship, this time with Aurora Kerr, a medical researcher, and in November he moved out of Organon to an apartment in Albin Towers, Washington, D.C. to live with her, using the pseudonym Dr. Walter Rona. The crazier he gets, the more affairs he gets into. I've noticed so many affairs. From this guy's full studies, like, it makes sense for the guy. And he's so insane and everybody wants to have an affair with him. Well, how many people have cloudbusters they can just show off? That's true, that's date. true. And he's got two of them that he can take to Nevada or Arizona. However, while he was doing this battle in Arizona, in May of 1956, one of his associates sent an accumulator part through the mail to another state, which was in violation of the injunction that the FDA had put on him through the courts. And specifically, this piece that was put through the mail was sent to an FDA inspector posing as a customer requesting it. So Reich and another associate, Dr. Michael Silvert, were charged with contempt of court. Reich appealed the lower court's decision in October of 1956, but the Court of Appeals upheld it in December of 11th of 1956. He wrote several times to J. Edgar Hoover, who I'm sure he's come up on the show before, head of the FBI in the 40s and 50s. He requested a meeting with him. I, he never received a response. And he appealed to the Supreme Court, which decided on February 25th, 1957, not to review his case. On March 12th, 1957, Reich and his colleague Silver were sent to Danbury Federal Prison. Oh no. Richard C. Hubbard, a psychiatrist who admired Reich, examined him on admission. He recorded paranoia manifest by delusions of grandiosity, persecution, and ideas of reference. The patient feels that he has made outstanding discoveries. Gradually, over a period of many years, he has explained the failures of his ideas and becoming universally accepted by the elaboration of psychotic thinking. The Rockefellers, <laughs> which he put sick beside because he said Rockefellers, are against me. This is the delusion of grandiosity. The airplanes flying over prison are sent by the Air Force to encourage me. Ideas of reference and grandiosity. On March 19th, Reich was transferred to the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary and examined again. This time it was decided that he was mentally competent and his personality seemed intact, though he might become psychotic when stressed. A few days later, on his 60th birthday, he wrote to his son Peter, who was then 13. I am in Lewisburg. I am calm, certain in my thoughts, and doing mathematics most of the time. I don't know who, like, needs to say that. Is that what saying him does? But I don't know. Why include the math? I'm kind of above things, quote unquote fully aware of what is up. 
Do not worry too much about me. Though anything might happen, I know, Pete, that you are strong and decent. At first, I thought that you should not visit me here. I do not know. With the world in turmoil, I now feel that a boy your age should experience what is coming this way. Fully digest it without getting a bellyache, so to speak. Nor getting off the right track of truth, fact, honesty, fair play, and being above board. Never a stink. Seems like a totally sane letter. Yeah. It starts off with F, so, I mean... Yeah, he's doing math all the time. Insane people don't do math, that is a fact. Oh no. (laughs) He then applied for presidential pardon to no avail, and Peter visited him in jail several times, where one prisoner said Reich was known as the flying saucer guy and the sex box man. (laughs) Which are apt. (laughs) Reich told Peter that he cried a lot and wanted Peter to let himself cry too, believing that tears are the great softener. His last letter to his son was on October 22nd, 1957, when he said he was looking forward to being released on November 10th. He served one third of his sentence. A parole hearing had been scheduled for a few days before that date, and he wrote that he and Peter had a date for a meal at the Howard Johnson restaurant near Peter's school. However, on... November 3rd, 1957, Reich failed to appear for roll call and was found at 7 a.m. in his bed, fully clothed but for his shoes, and the prison doctor said that he had died during the night of myocardial insufficiency with sudden heart failure. Just eight days until his release. Or at least supposed release, yeah. He was buried in a vault at Organon that he had asked his caretakers to dig in 1955, and he had left instructions that there was to be no religious ceremony, but that a record should be played by Schubert's Ava Maria, sung by Marianne Anderson, and that his granite headstone should read simply, Wilhelm Reich, born March 24th, 1897, died, dot, 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 because he didn't know his death. Of course. None of the academic journals really said anything about him or had an obituary for him, but the Time magazines wrote on November 18th, 1957, Wilhelm Reich died. 60. Once famed psychoanalyst, associate, and follower of Sigmund Freud, founder of the Wilhelm Reich Foundation, lately better known for his unorthodox sex and energy theories, died of a heart attack in Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary, Pennsylvania, where he was serving a two-year term for distributing his invention, the Orgone Energy Accumulator, in violation of the FDA. A telephone booth-sized device that supposedly gathered energy from the atmosphere and could cure while the patient sat inside, common colds, cancers, and impotence. That's the story of Wilhelm Reich and Orgone. What an incredible story. That was something. Now, I want to ask, was there any actual research done into whether this actually had healing qualities? There were two trains of thought in my research into this. And I didn't have enough time to actually look into which one was correct. The full believers in organ energy say that there are papers out there that show these things absolutely can cure many things. There are some who say that it does show some signs that it can help. I saw a paper that said that it was able to help the germination of seeds that were germinated inside it. Mm, okay. Anything above that, they couldn't see. And then there were people that found that there was nothing above placebo level effects. You would think that... I mean, placebo or not, it's still something, right? Well, yeah, but you could give a sugar pill instead of building a box for people to sit inside. Unless you want four hours of privacy from your wife every day. Well, exactly. I mean, that that's enough. Some people. Yeah. And especially when germinating seeds, I mean, how would that be a placebo effect? It's pretty cut or dry. It's not really. And I could not look at the papers that actually cited that. So I'm not sure how official it is that they did do that. I can tell you that Albert Einstein laughed at it and said, it's pretty simple, the mistake you made, and then never looked at it again. 
And the guy's pretty credible. That was my next question, because he pretty much just said you didn't account for it being colder down below than up high. Yeah. And then just kind of wrote it off, but it doesn't seem like he looked at anything else. Well, he's studied it for 10 days and said that was the thing that was happening. So I really don't know. But I do know this guy is not taken seriously by anybody. Yeah, I could see why a little bit. But him saying, you know, you didn't look at the temperature variance properly doesn't actually say there's no evidence that this is actually healing anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I should also say, especially if you're looking at cancer treatment or any type of medical treatment, you need to be very careful what you're actually looking at. If something can cure cancer, it might be that you have some cancer cells in a Petri dish. If you administer enough of anything to something just grown in a Petri dish, it will die. So just letting something live in a Petri dish in a box likely could kill it. Yeah. So I haven't looked enough at what his actual studies were. The turnaround was too tight and I'm not that well versed at reading medical research. So I don't know if I'm the right person to do that. Maybe we can talk to somebody someday who can actually read those for us and tell us what's up. But at this point, I'm comfortable saying that if nobody has taken this research seriously, that there might be a reason for it. Okay. Fair enough. I really enjoyed the ride. That was a really good one. That that was a nice biography and it's not done that's the biography but there is more to it oh okay (laughs) you know what was not mentioned at all in the entirety of that biography any governmental work like say on a project called project phoenix oh i didn't even remember in fact he seemed to hate the government like at the end he hated it yeah okay so how the hell did this guy get involved yeah and i found a review of the montac project by preston nichols The reviewer is a James DeMio, who is a PhD. He has those extra letters behind his name. Therefore, his opinion holds some sort of level with us. And I just need to read the whole of this review because I feel like it's going to shed some light on that episode as well. Okay, great. Let's shed some light onto it. The author asserts that Wilhelm Reich played an important role. Chapter 7 of the book, titled Wilhelm Reich and the Phoenix Project, identifies Reich's discovery of orgone energy, DOR, that's the dead orgone energy, and other details suggesting the author has studied Reich in some manner. The author asserts Reich's atmospheric work was also followed by the U.S. government officials who, with Reich's cooperation, used his discoveries to develop the radio song, a device sent up in weather balloons for measuring upper atmospheric temperature, humidity, and pressure. Yeah. However, the Montauk Project presents the radio sound as a secret Reichian weather control device developed in collusion with the U.S. government. A separate one-page appendix titled Wilhelm Reich presents a few additional confused and error-filled paragraphs. The author knows enough about Reich's work to use his terms, such as Orgone and D.O.R. Buster, which suggests the fabrications are not accidental. The author cleverly accuses disbelievers and critics of his fantasy tale of engaging in disinformation, which may be a Freudian slip for the motivation to include Reich in the book. For example, and this is a quote from the book, Despite what disinformation you may hear, the government already knew that Reich could do and considered him a brilliant man. They asked for his prototypes and he was happy to oblige them. Later, the author asserts that the Reichian weather control aspects of the radio spawn are cleverly disguised in its electronics because of these precautions the secret was maintained for over 40 years. Of course, there is not one shred of evidence behind these fairy tales, but no matter, the book is filled with such paranoid confusion from start to finish. To summarize my feelings about this book, it is mediocre science fiction, which he said you could read it as. <laughs> well, yeah, 
That sounds like a gray fact. Yeah. Oh, and sorry, that comes up. The Philadelphia experiment, for example, is the least documented of any of the supposed secret government research projects. I recall reading about this experiment more than 30 years ago as a teenager in science fiction paperback and comics. The entire fabric of the story is woven from assertions by a few individuals who claim to have inside knowledge which came to them after regaining previously blocked memories. In an introductory passage, the author admits the book is but an exercise of consciousness and states the story is founded upon soft facts and gray facts in contrast to hard facts backed by documentation. And so by the author's own admission, the Montauk Project fails to document any of its central premises regarding the purported strange experiments or the proposed role of Reich or Tesla, for that matter, who does come up in the book too, apparently, in any of it. Having seen and weathered far more studied attempts to undermine Reich's solid research, I can't get worked up about this book. No scholar will take the book seriously because in addition to lacking documentation, the author admits to disorientation, flights of fantasy, breaking with reality, and open involvement with psychoactive electronics. My major annoyance is that growing numbers of lay people who know nothing about Reich are taking the book seriously. It is becoming a hot item on the strangeness circuit. Already, I have received a dozen calls asking if the book is true. Several mail-order book catalogs devoted to unorthodox subjects also carry it, alongside other titles on bona fide subjects, lending an aura of legitimacy to it. And recently, the author Nichols has lectured to eager audiences at various free energy or new age groups. The Rim Institute Center in Arizona also scheduled a workshop on time travel and the alien presence with the following description in their catalog. Quote, The Montauk Project has been called one of America's greatest modern mysteries. The story began with the pioneering work of Wilhelm Reich and Nikola Tesla. It took form in government-sponsored weather control <laughs> experiments in the early 1940s and crystallized in the ill-fated Philadelphia experiment on invisibility during World War II. The incredible story includes joint human-alien research, abduction and brainwashing, advanced age regression techniques, psychics linked into Tesla technology, missing Nazi gold, explorers lost forever in alternate worlds. Nichols regained the blanked memories of his role as chief technician for the project after years of struggle. And so, the amazing story of Wilhelm Reich's secret government research spreads. The author of The Montauk Project will likely find a warmer welcome on the public speaking circuit than anyone who has only researched Reich's findings on fascism, sexuality, and bions, organ accumulators, cloud busters, or other less spectacular subjects. In fact, to satisfy the growing public's interest in this fairy tale, a second book, Montauk Revisited, was recently released along with a video, Montauk Project Tour. It is a strange social phenomenon indeed. For those who have been emotionally touched and helped by Reich's discovery, who have worked hard to keep orgonomy clean of mystical distortions, delusions, fabrications, and hostile attacks, the book presents quite a challenge. The public appears thirsty not for the difficult truths and facts developed in Reich's painstaking research, but instead for whatever meager scraps of fantasy and mystical delusions which can be conjured up to erode away those same hard facts. Quote. Reich is more acceptable as the archetypical mad scientist or as part of a secret governmental experiment moving back and forth into other dimensions. Perhaps this is to be expected from a popular culture addicted to violence, mysticism, and horror films. And it makes one wish Reich actually did develop a method for time travel, as there are a few people we'd like to teleport back to the Stone Age. Um, This guy seemed to quite like Reich, so he's quite pissed off about how he's used. But that's the only actual connection I could find between Reich and Montauk, or Phoenix Project, was that book. Like, nobody else makes that connection. That's hilarious. So it was to just take the mysticism of the guy and add it into this other weird stuff. 
which is also kind of partially how Tesla has the mystique he has today. But maybe we could do a Tesla episode in a later date. Yeah, I'm sure we could. But yeah, that's Orgon Energy and why it has to do with Montauk Project and Wilhelm Reich. One last thing, there were the proponents who really believed in Wilhelm Reich that really came about in the 1960s. Like I said, the term sexual revolution comes from this man. One of the big ones was William S. Burroughs, who wrote A Naked Lunch. Super weird book. I believe it was one of the last books that was ever just outright banned in the United States. Here's a little paragraph I found about this. William S. Burroughs was a major proponent of orgone research, who often included it as a part of the surreal imagery in his novels. Orgone interested Burroughs particularly because he believed that it could be used to ease or alleviate junk sickness, a popular term for heroin withdrawal. This fitted well in the context of his novels, which were usually narrative recreations of his own experiences with narcotics and the beat life. Burroughs explicitly compares kicking the habit to cancer in the novel Junkie and ties it to the use of orgone accumulators. At the time that Burroughs was writing, orgone accumulators were only available from Reich's Orgone Institute in New York. Offered for a $10 per month donation, Burroughs built his own instead, substituting Rockwell for the sheet iron, but believed it still achieved the desired effect. So major influences through the 1960s like believed in this man a lot. So you really see a lot of his ideas and work kind of just being intermeshed with the 1960s sexual revolution. Interesting. I really like this one. This is a good one. It was super weird. Like, did you expect that? Not one part of it. No. You know what? I wish my biography would be this like that was a pretty great biography i i don't think that i could wish for anything more on a biography if it were me but sadly my life has taken another turn <laughs> where yeah. have i gone wrong if you want to learn more about orgone energy there are definitely still websites out there devoted to it or you can learn more there was specifically one webpage, the ergonomicscience.org where you can learn about orgone therapy i definitely tried to leave a lot of the sexual assault stuff out of this episode just because we are already over an hour and that would have just added so much unneeded sadness to this otherwise yeah. interesting episode. Just keep in mind, if we're talking about Wilhelm Reich, there is a lot of sexual abuse also. Okay, good to know. So, at least alleged. But yeah, that's what I got. Chelsea, anything to add? No, I've added everything that I could think of. Okay. Well, with that, I bid you all an Oregonian adieu. I am Taylor here at Chelsea. We have been Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh